Take your Bibles, and if you would, and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read the whole chapter, actually. Historically, this has been known as Paul's last writing of all of his epistles. And presumably, it was within the year of his death. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all, also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he uh, he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, and so do Prudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. I want to share just personally tonight, thank you so much for the many cards, texts, and calls, and even visits um, in the passing away of my mom. I never would have guessed a year ago that in the same uh, 12-month period, actually 8-month period, my, my dad and my cousin, I grew up with Felicia, and my mom would all pass away. Um, my dad was 81, my mom was 78, and my cousin had diabetes, she was 52. Um, my dad only had one month uh, once he realized he was terminally sick, uh, and in 30 days he passed away. My mom, 
um, when I got there, uh, she had died in her sleep. They put her to bed at 7.30 every night, and then at 9.30 they go to check on her to make she's okay. And uh, between 7.30 and 9.30 she passed away in her sleep. And so that was what my dad wanted. He didn't get that, but he would say that would be par for the course. Um, I reckoned that thinking about my mom and my dad um, in particular, uh, my grandparents lived far old. They were both in their 90s. Um, But I figured that since I'm 55, that I'm two-thirds dead or done. Um, Definitely playing on the back nine as part of my life. Um, And thinking about my mom and dad and my, my cousin in particular as well, I, I, I thought about at the funeral, and I did their sermons and their services, I thought, well, I just want to finish well. Um, I've known the Lord since I was 12, and if I, my math is correct, that's 43 years ago. Um, if the Lord gives me 43 more minutes or hours or days or maybe even years, I, I can't imagine that for Chris's sake, but um, I just want to finish well. Um, I, I prayed that for my dad when he got sick. I said, Dad, you just finish well. Just hold on to the faith and, and, and trust God. I couldn't tell my mom that. Um, she had dementia, and so I, I was not able to talk to her for a number of years in, in any legible way. Um, but tonight I want to share an idea that this, this passage of Scripture really shares very poignantly. And I said, to finish well, here's my idea, you must be willing to stand for Jesus your entire life. Um, Paul tells Timothy in this chapter that there are three ways that you have to stand for Jesus if you want to finish well. I wish someone had told me when I was 25, now that I'm 55, I wish someone had told me when I was 25, start thinking about finishing well now. Um, Because I think that's similar to the boat that Timothy's in. I mean, Paul theoretically died around 60 to 65 years old which was very old for his time period. The average death was 50. Um, So Paul in his 60s, it's incredible that he could have lived that long after all the beatings he took. Um, But Timothy probably far less, maybe in his 40s, um, still has a number of years ahead of him. Probably the replacement for Paul on the Christian scene, uh, one that he's going to be gone. And so he's going to give him some insights, Timothy, um, I won't be there to help you anymore. How do you finish well? First, can I say this to you in verses 1 through 5? You must stand out for Jesus. If you're going to stand for Jesus, there's three ways. First is you have to stand out for Jesus. And let me show you how to do that. In this text, in verse 1 and verse 8, there are two what's called inclusions, or what I like to say brackets is easier to remember. They are framework repetitive words that give you an idea what he's trying to say in between these two paragraphs. The first one is the word judge. Verse 1, he says, I charge you in the presence of God. This is is making it formal and solemn. In other words, charging him is, I'm putting you on note formally in God's presence. I mean, he's calling on God as a witness. So, I mean, this is a pretty serious issue. Who is to judge the living and dead. Okay, so he puts the idea of the final judgment when you stand before God. And he does it again at the end of this section in verse 8 when he says that henceforth there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord said again, the righteous judge. And so this big section is frameworked by the fact that God is going to be the judge. 
and, uh, of it all. So I wrote in my notes, for me, I wrote down while I was thinking about my parents, if I'm going to stand out for Jesus today, I'll need to keep in mind that I will stand before Jesus someday. I think what motivates me to want to finish well is that the moment I'm finished, I'm going to stand before God. And he is the, Paul says, he's not just the judge, he's the righteous judge. See, in the text, look at it, it says he's going to give you the crown of righteousness and he is the righteous judge. In other words, what God says about my life will be 100 completely percent accurate. He won't mess around. He's not going to cut me any slack. He's not grading on a curve. It's going to be righteous. going to be just in righteous judgment. He also says that about Alexander the coppersmith, flip the coin over, that the Lord will reward him according to his deeds. Right? So when, when Alexander the coppersmith stands before God, he also will get righteous judgment. Now, we only get in heaven because of God's mercy in that judgment, but Alexander the coppersmith seemingly won't get any of that. And that reminds me that I want to finish well, not because I'm earning God's favor at the judgment, but because unlike all the lost people, he's granted me mercy. See, I'm not, there's no boasting in myself in finishing well. It's all about him and his glory and his honor. So let me tell you this. The second little word that frameworks this text is the same verses, and it's the word appearing. He says, I charge you in the presence of God, of Christ, who is the judge of living, and by his appearing and his kingdom. He does it again in verse 8. He says, there's laid up for me the crown which is righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And then he includes me and you, and Timothy, of course, in context. And not me only, but all those who what? Who love his appearing. See it there? See, and the word appearing is the word epiphany. In other words, God's going to manifest himself and he's going to show and reveal himself to you and he's going to make everything right. Not in, in this text also, can I throw one more in there? I want to get, get the principle to you. In chapter 4 and verse 8, he says, who will award me, see it, circle it, on that day, that day, Turn back a page, because he's going to use this in a couple other places. Chapter 1 and verse 12 of 2 Timothy reads this. Which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed. So how do you stay, stand out for God? When everybody else would ridicule you and say what you believe is shameful, he says, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard, see it, until... That day, that day when I stand before the judge and give an account of my life. Again, in verse 18, he says, May the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. See, you know how you live today for Jesus when it's tough, when you're the only teenager, as it were, at your school who's a Christian or very few, when you're on the job and you're not going to go out with all the people after work and do the things that they do, and you're not going to cut corners that you can fit in so the boss will give you the better job. See, how do you do it and you get ridiculed, but you don't get the promotion, you don't get this, you don't be popular? And so, you know, because this day is transformed by that day. I live in the present because I know I'll stand for God in the future. We all, according to Paul, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Have you ever imagined that day? Standing before Jesus 
and having him go over and give an account of your life, it's motivating. What does it motivate Paul and obviously as well Timothy to do? He says, in light of Jesus coming back, he has a little admonition, and he uses it three times in this text. Not as easy in this version of English to see, but verse 5 starts with this. He says to this, here's how you're going to stand out for Jesus. You're going to preach the word in season, out of season. You're going to preach the word. I'm going to come back to this. You're going to practice the word. And he says, unlike everybody else who has given up the truth and they compromise it and they turn to fables and myths and all kinds of things and they don't hold the truth anymore and you live in a culture where everybody is compromising, giving up the word of God. He says, that's what they're all like. Then he says, verse 5, but as for you, in other words, in contrast. See, here's what Jesus wants to know when you stand before him. Did you live the contrasted life? The same little but contrast is also used in chapter 3 and verse 10. And I wish in the New King James they made the exact same thing in the English. I wish they would have done it here. But it says, you, however, it's the same idea, but in the Greek it's the same phrase. But for you, verse 10. Verse 14, he says, Timothy, remember how you were imposters and all these people who deceive? That's not how you were raised, he says, verse 14. But as for you, see, here's the idea. Timothy, you're different. You're not like everybody else. You need to live the contrast. That's how, number one, you know how you stand for Jesus and finish well? You stand out for him. You're different from everybody else. You're not like everybody else. In Timothy's day, they were giving themselves over, as I said, to myths and fables. They were turning the truth into lies. Listen, there's not a lot of difference between the first century and the 21st century. Because today, people are quitting on the truth. And look at the text in 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 4. He says in verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure healthy, sound, the idea is, They will not endure healthy or sound doctrine. And then it says, but instead, they're going to live according to their passion. So I wrote in my notes, today, to be different, you have to be different than this. People today are, by and large, ruled by desires, not doctrine. It's by their wants, not the word. They have feelings, not faith. That's what rules people. That's why, I hate to say it, It's popular to have gigantic concerts on Sunday morning in a lot of churches because they don't really come for the truth, by and large. They come for the feelings that go along with the hyped-up music. Not because it's wrong to have good music in your church or even modern or newer music. There's nothing sacred about singing older songs, although they're good and I love them and we do it, right? But to make it an event and not have any other service all week long... Is because you're catering to people's desires. They really are not interested in the deep things or the things of God. They're interested in an experience that will make them feel good to hopefully get through the week. And that's what churches have catered to. And look around us today. The truth is no longer popular. The truth is no longer relevant. And the truth is no longer absolute. Because the Bible has lost its authority in many people's lives. So today what's happened is the Bible is no longer inspired. I've read two articles this week about major teachers that I used to know who no longer think the Bible is inspired by God. 
Marriage today in our culture is no longer between a man and a woman only. Gender is no longer a biologically defined. Evolution is no longer a lie. Pastors and preachers are no longer exclusively men. And Jesus is no longer the only way to heaven. And on and on the list goes. See, this is the day in which we live. This is not just true in broader, wider culture. It is becoming more and more rapidly true within our churches, even evangelical churches and authors who once would have been abhorred by these movements from the truth, but now have embraced them. So here's what Paul tells Timothy. If you want to finish well, he says, guard the faith, he says. Guard it. See, we have let down our guard. And all of these errors and false teachings have entered even the church. He says, here's how you stand out for Jesus. You preach the truth, even if you're different than everybody else. Not because it's our badge of merit. Not because we're better or superior, but because it's true and it's God. Secondly, he says in verse 5, and I love this part, not only to preach the truth, but practice the truth. Put together in your mind these two words and, 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 and get a principle from it. He says in verse 3 that when, you, when people no longer want to endure, I'm sorry, sound teaching, here's what's going to happen to you. Verse 5, you will endure suffering. See the two words endure? See, he says, here's what's going to happen. People won't endure sound doctrine anymore, and so they're going to hurt you, persecute you, do all kinds of things to you. And I'm telling you, bracing you, not because I'm looking forward to it, but in America, we will probably, I would guess, not finish easily. We won't. Because we hold on to the truth and people aren't enduring it, they're quitting on the truth, they're giving into it, changing it, challenging it, tossing it, out in many occasions, that they are now going to brand you as a bigot. And you are not tolerant in all the political language that goes with it if you stand up for it. No, no doubt in my mind we should stand up and say everything that we believe in love and truth. But to stand out will cost you something. It did in the first century. It cost Paul his life. John the baptizer got his head cut off because he called out those in leadership that were immoral in the country. So now more than ever, Christians need to be able to stand out for Jesus. But let me tell you this. The hard thing for most Christians today is when you stand out for Jesus in a culture that's as perverse as ours is, it's easier to get in our Christian ghettos, our little subcultures, and stay in here in the four walls and say, wow, it's so much better in here. I don't have to put up with all the language and the filth and, the, and everything else that goes on in the Word. And I just come in here, and I don't really like to go out there. I don't want to have any lost friends. I don't want to do anything with them. See, look at verse 5. Be sober-minded, endure suffering. Listen to this. Do the work of an evangelist. Guess what? The darker the night, finish it. Yeah, the greater the light. Here's what Paul says. This is not my admonition to you, Timothy, to huddle, have a holy huddle, and never get into the world. No, here's what he wants. You be in the world, but not of it. See, this is no time for Christians to hide in the four walls of the church, even though it's so bad out there. Here's the opposite. See, we need to have lost people as our friends. 
And we need to be able to be around them and know their life and invest in them and take them out and do things with them and be around them. Why? Do the work of an evangelist. They need Jesus just like you and me. And we needed him. So our theme this year, go to grow. You know why? Because we need to go. As bad as our world and as dark as it is, they need the light of Jesus. And I can tell you this, the older I get, the more I realize that I just need to spend more time with people. You, I went for me to the funeral and I saw I had 21 members from my family there. Most of them I don't see hardly at all. And I asked myself the question, why? Why don't I? And I came up with a lot of righteous reasoning. Meaning, I'm busy doing God's work, I live in another part of the country, and I realized this, you know, a lot of my, some of my family members are lost. And for me, I had never given them the gospel. I didn't know their life to know how to even present the gospel to them. You know why? Because I don't spend any time with them. And with all the technology, with social media and email and technology and texting, and bo- I haven't done anything for them. And these are my family members, some of them. Not, not immediate family, but down the road a little bit. So the question was, why not? Because people matter most. People matter most. And if you want to finish well, here's what Paul tells Timothy. It's bad out there, so go get your hands dirty. That's what he says. Get out there and get your hands dirty. So if you want to finish well, stand out for Jesus. Number two, verses six through eight, you need to stand up for Jesus. Paul says in a very peculiar phrase, that's the Old Testament, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Hold your finger here and turn to Philippians. The only other place that I know of that he makes this statement is from a prison cell in Philippi, not in Rome, but as he writes Philippians, And he wasn't really sure. He thought he was going to get out, but he wasn't totally 100% sure. And so he writes, and with a little uncertainty in this one. In 2 Timothy, when he says he's being poured out, he says, I'm already, the pouring has begun. So it's not, he knows he's dying. This one he's not so sure, but he says the same thing in Philippians 2, 17. Even if I am to be poured out, as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. In other words, if getting you saved costs me my life and imprisonment and, and ultimate death, so be it. If that's how my life is poured out, I will. I'll do it. And at the end of his life, he says, I'm already being, you know, listen, ministering to Gentiles has cost me everything. It's cost me my life. I wrote down, again, in my notes for this last week, if your life is not lived as a sacrifice, your death will not be one either. In other words, see, way back in Philippians, he was already thinking about his life as a drink offering and pouring it out for the sake of others. And at the end of his life, that's exactly what he does, and those are years apart. So you know what he's doing his whole life? He's living this out. I am convinced that you, will know, you are no better at your death than you were in your life. You won't be. And if you think somehow that you can lack commitment and lack dedication and fervency and zeal for God most of your life, but you'll pour it on at the end, it will not happen. It won't happen. You end up how you were your whole life. That's why my big idea was at the beginning that if you want to finish well, you must stand up or stand for Jesus your entire life. 
It's not something to be postponed. It's not something to be put off. It's not something to be added on at a later time that's more convenient and fitting in with the things of your life at this point. No, Paul said, here's what I want. I want my life to be poured out for God all the time so that when I come to die, he can just finish the pouring. It's a libation offering. It's pouring it out on the sacrifice in the temple. It's an act of worship to God. That's how you finish well. Finishing well says this, everything I say and everything I do in life from now until the time I die is an act of worship to God. Not some things, it's not sacred and secular. That division is hooey. They're all sacred and and Paul knew it. And here's the thing. Paul knows he's dying. And so wouldn't you think after all the beatings and imprisonment and the suffering that he went through that he might be a little self-oriented? They might think he could take it easy and coast to the finish. You know what he says? Not one thing. No way. Not doing that. Not coasting. Not at all. And no matter, let me tell you this. You may have it bad, and I don't know their circumstances. I'm not trying to downplay it or be sarcastic. But I doubt anyone's circumstances could, to, could match Paul's and what he went through and how he died. Do you know the maritime prison where he died was basically a circular hole in the ground? And if you ever go to the maritime prison today, the the hole was about this wide. You had to be let down into it with a rope at the bottom. And there was nothing in the hole but bottom, but a little bit of mud and sometimes rats. And therefore, he asks to have the cloak brought to him before winter. Because the cloak was a big, heavy piece of material with a hole around it for your head. You put it over and you wore it. It was falling to the floor and it was for winter. It was for cold because they give you nothing in prison. We feed our prisoners, give them a bed, do all the things in America. In first century, you get nothing. There is no bed. There is no food. So read into the words in a minute when he says, See, these people have deserted me. At my first apologetic, my defense, no one stood with me. And the reason is not only was he alone, but they didn't give him anything. Without those people, he wasn't getting anything to eat. He wasn't getting the proper clothing. He did not have the parchments, which he wrote on to write letters to people and to read the scriptures. He didn't have any of those things. So when people deserted him, it wasn't just a personal relational thing, although it was that for sure. It was all kinds of things. Socially, physiologically, it was a big deal for him. But he says, you know what? In the middle of all that, I don't get self-oriented. It isn't about me. He says, I want my life to be poured out as a drink offering. He goes on to say, and here's why. Because that's the only attitude that will amount to anything if you want to fight the good fight. Literally in the Greek, agonize the good agony. That's what it takes to finish. And I have watched my, my dad and my cousin who almost had her foot amputated twice because of diabetes. I've watched her and talked to her on the phone when she said she didn't know how much she could go on, where she had all of her hopes on a transplant and a new uh, a kidney, I think it was, or whatever the case might be. Tell me what you get when you get a... Is it kidney? Yes. She, she was on the list for five years, never got it. She either got too old or she was too far along, and they wouldn't give it to her. Agonize the good agony. He says, I have finished, see, finished well, completed the race. It's not a sprint, 100-yard dash. It's a marathon. And he guarded the faith. See, 
it won't be easy to finish. Whether your finish is 30 days long like my dad or seven and a half years without your memory like my mom or in pain and hopelessness like my cousin Felicia, you're not going to get what you thought would keep you alive. Physical agony, spiritual agony, relational agony. When I was growing up, you remember, I was talking to Dennis before the service, you remember when you watched sports, they used to have the wild world of sports, remember on ABC? And they'd always have it introduced with that music, and I, you know, if I played it, you all thought, oh yeah, I remember now. And they'd always say, the thrill of victory, and then they'd have the agony of the feet, and this guy would be coming down the ski slope, and he'd get right, it's a ski jump, and right before he'd get to the end, he trips, he falls over, flops over three times, smashes his body on the ground. I mean, it's a wreck. I looked up that guy today, Vinko Bogataj, that was his name, from Slovenia. They interviewed him, he's world famous, not because he was a good ski jumper, obviously, but because he was used on that little clip, and he became famous. They interviewed him at his house. He has the ABC Wild World Sports big banner they gave him all over his wall. People come and talk to him, interview him. Not anything to do with what he was good at, quote-unquote, but because of that one thing. I found out, though, and watching that, you know that wasn't his first jump in the Olympics? It was his second jump. His first jump was 410 feet, and he was ready for a medal But the second jump, he didn't finish because he wrecked it. And see, that can be us. See, you can make the first jump in life, and you can do real, I mean, you were out there. I mean, you were doing well for God, and you did all this, and you started out. And remember, and I'll just give you a little push, ready? I remember when so-and-so used to do VBS, and they would be right out there in front, and you didn't take any time to sign up, went up, and you signed up. Uh, Pastor Walker, I'm a little older now, and... You know, or, you know, I, I'm really got, you have reasons and excuses, don't we? But the first jump was good, the fir- really good. But the second one, yikes. I mean, you're falling down the thing, you didn't get off the jump. And Paul says, that won't happen, not for me, he says. And what motivated him to keep going like that? Verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me. Oh, I love that word, laid up for me. You remember this? Okay, I'm getting nostalgic here today. You remember this when you used to go to the store and I was a kid and my parents would say, I, I, I really want to get that. And my parents would go, well, then you need to buy it. I'm not helping you. And so I did this. I put it on layaway. You remember layaway? How many remember layaway? You are so old. Do they, they still do layaway today? So Pastor Steve looked it up for me. Kmart does it. Walmart does it. I did not know that. I'm, honey, I'm putting stuff on layaway. Lay away. Remember, you used to, because you put it up and you stored it up for yourselves and you paid it in increments until you could pay it all off. Here's what Paul says. You know what? I've got a crown and I've laid it away. It's on layaway. And not because he's working for it, but he says, I'm running for it. I'm, I'm fighting for it. I'm getting there. He says, I've laid it away, this crown. And, and, and listen to this because it's super powerful and I won't spend much time on it. In the Greek, it's an Here's a big hairy term for you. It's exegetical, and it really could be translated best. The crown which is righteousness. It's not a crown of righteousness, a bunch of other crowns. All the crowns have that same thing in the Bible. The righteousness is telling you what the crown is. Don't blow your bubble here. It may be a real crown you put on your head, but it, most of all, the important thing is what it symbolizes. It's the righteousness of Jesus. In other words, when you finish the race 
and you run hard, and by God's grace, you stand before him, and you're one of his. He says, here's my righteousness. You can be with me forever. It's the crown. It's not because you earn his righteousness, but your whole life, the way you lived it, demonstrated that you loved him and you knew him and you wanted to live your life for him. That's why, look at the verse 8, how it ends. The Lord is going to give me the crown, which is righteousness, which the righteous judge, that's what he says, because he's righteous. He's not giving it to me because I'm great. You don't work for your way to heaven. But because my works demonstrated he'd saved me. But watch, he says, and not to me only, Ready? And to all those who, circle this word, loved his appearing. He didn't just say, hey, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. You know what he says? No, they loved it. It was the change on the inside. Now, if you put your mind in the scriptures, ready? What does he mean by that? Well, look at the next couple verses because he's going to tell you by way of contrast what he means. Because not everyone who says they're Christian loves God the right way or at all. Because Demas didn't. Look at verse 10. And contrast, draw the line. Ready? 4.10. For Demas, circle it, in love with this present. Notice, present world. See, Paul said, you know how I keep going? I have a love that's in the next world. It's coming in the future. My greatest passion and love isn't right here on things here. It's in Jesus coming back and all that he's going to be for me and give me someday. He goes, but Demas, and read Demas's name. At the end of Colossians, at the end of other books, he partnered with Paul, ran around with Paul, did ministry with Paul. But when it came down to finishing, guess what? Demas didn't finish well. You know why? Because he showed what he really loved. He showed what he really loved. See, that's why I tell people, come to all the services. You know why? Not because I'm legalist, and not because it makes you more spiritual, because every time, here's how I look at it, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, you know what it says? It gives me an opportunity to say, I love you, God. And I get to show him, you mean everything to me. I, I, there's nothing I can do, I think, for this hour. I'd rather be anywhere else. And I want your word, and I want you to teach me. See, this isn't about earning anything. This is about love. This is about love. Demas lost that love. And the Bible says that he abandoned Paul. He deserted him. When he needed him the most, the guy said, I can't associate with you. Because when you go to trial and stand there and they say you're the ringleader of Christianity, guess what they'll think I am when I stand next to you? See, it's going to cost me too much, he says. Someone told me one time, you can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. There's a Greek word for that, hogwash. You can't be. We are not heavenly minded. Most of us are not. When's the last time you sat down and thought about heaven, the future, standing before God? We don't think that way. We should. We need to. Because if you're going to finish well... You're going to have to stand out for God, for Jesus. You're going to have to stand up for Jesus. And lastly... You're going to have to stand alone for Jesus. In verses 9 through 18, there are three groups, and I'll close with this. There are those who did not stand with Paul, i.e. demons, possibly Cretans, and even Titus. We're not sure his inclusion there is because he did the same thing as Demas or not. We're not sure, but he, he's the one they wrote the book of Titus to. 
There are those who stood against Paul. And the the Greek words in these are all verbs that mean to stand. It's interesting. Those who stood, Alexander the coppersmith, it says, verse 14, did me much evil. And verse 15, it says, he strongly opposed. And it's the word we get in English, antihistamine. You know what an antihistamine? Anti meaning against, histamine to resist. When you take antihistamines, they resist the bad things in your body to overcome them. That was Alexander the coppersmith. He was a personal antihistamine, spiritually. He tried to oppose the message of the gospel, Paul says. God's going to reward him for that, he says. So there are people who stood, didn't stand with Paul that should have. There are people who stood against Paul. And praise God that there are those who stood with him. But it's a sad little word. And phrase, look at verse 11. Chapter 4 and verse 11, he says, Luke alone is with me. That must have been hard to pen, although he didn't have a pen. Luke only. I mean, look at all the guys he's named. Look at all the guys who left him. There weren't anybody, it wasn't anybody there, only Luke. And Luke wasn't even Jewish. I mean, Luke was a Gentile who came to faith, in, and we don't even know where he came to faith in. He was a doctor, recorded the Bible books, Acts and Luke, we know that. Only Luke, only, the one, only, he said. See, let me tell you this. It won't be popular to stand for Jesus and stand out for him and stand up for him in this day. You will have to do it alone. Just put it in your mind. There won't be anybody else. In fact, he goes on later on in verse 16. He said, at my first defense, when you were tried by the Romans, you get two defenses. That's where we get the word apologetic from. The first one was a trial to see if you were worthy of being, uh, you know, condemned. The second one was to give you your sentence. Paul says that my first apology, when it was still up for grabs, what would happen to me, nobody came. And I take it to mean Luke too. Nobody showed up. In other words, Paul stood before Nero. Nobody was there. Nobody. Because I'm not being associated with him. I know what that's going to go. And he says this, I hope it isn't laid. God said, don't lay it to their charge. And the word is, don't put that on their account. Put it on mine. Just like Jesus did when everyone forsook him at the cross. He says, I was alone. Everybody abandoned me. But I love this part. Verse 17 says, in contrast, but, but the Lord stood by me. Oh, see, Luke at one point even didn't, and Titus didn't, and Cretans didn't, and Demas didn't. They didn't stand by me, but Jesus did. <laughs> Can I tell you this? Do you know how you stand out for Jesus and stand up for Jesus and even stand alone for Jesus? Because here's what he'll say. Because I always stand with you. Always. You follow my, my commandments. You obey me. You love me. You live for me. You count the cost for me. Live the contrast. He says, I'll always be there for you. Verse 17 says, and he strengthened me. But watch what he strengthened you for. And you, this won't be comforting if you don't believe like Paul that through me the message might be fully, listen, circle it, fully complain, com, uh, proclaimed. Same verb as verse 5, fulfill your ministry. In other words, finish it, complete it. I look at it this way. God made me and gave me a ministry. It may be here for longer, and it may be somewhere else on the mission field some other day. I don't know, 
but here's what I want. I want to finish it fully, completely. Whether it's 55, 65, 75, or 85, I don't know. I really don't. But I want to finish it. I want to complete it. And I know this, that when I follow him, he will stand by me. Though no one else may, he will. Ask yourself the question, are you on the right road to finishing? What would have to change? What would have to be added? What would have to be taken away if you're ever going to finish and stand for Jesus? Let's close in prayer. Father, oh, according to your mercy, we may have many more years, some of us. Some of us fewer years. Some of us are younger and think we have our whole lives together. And by your mercy and grace, we pray that's true. But it may not be. You know, Proverbs says, boast not yourself of tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring forth. Father, thank you for the gift of Ecclesiastes 7.2, which says it's, good to, it's better to be in the house of mourning than it is the house of feasting. It's better to be in a funeral home than it is a party, because this is the end of all men and the living will take it to heart. Father, all of us are going to die. No exceptions. And we will stand before you. That is no exception. But the question is, how will we have stood for you before we get there? Will we have been dedicated and loyal to you our whole lives where you are everything, like it was for Paul? And the living will take it to heart. Help us to take it to heart. As we look forward down the road to our death, may we look beyond that and say to our eternal life, standing before Jesus, that we might live our lives, that if it were today, we might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' wonderful, wonderful name. Amen.